Well, uh, if you have a Bible and you'd like to turn with me, we're studying Paul's letter to the Colossians. We're going now to Colossians chapter 3. I'm going to pick up uh, reading just a bit earlier in verse 8, but we'll be considering especially verses 10 through 17 under this heading, Is Jesus Lord of my church life? Is Jesus Lord of my church life? Let's read together from God's Word, starting in Colossians chapter 3, verse 8. But now you yourselves are to put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man, who is renewed in knowledge, according to the image of him who created him. Where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, Barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, Even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which you were also called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace to your heart in your hearts to the Lord and whatever you do in word or deed do all in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God the Father through him amen let's pray again once more our father we thank you again for your holy word which speaks to us good and encouraging wise things we pray that through these things that we too might be continue to learn these lessons that you have laid out for your church. We thank you, O God, for the promise of the Holy Spirit to help to teach and to lead us on, to renew us from the inside. You yourself have chosen and called us together for this time. And so we pray that you would fulfill your good purposes in us, in Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. A woman named Heather King was a writer for National Public Radio and became a Christian about 12 years ago. She wrote a book about her experience of uh, getting sober, of meeting the Lord, and what it then meant to her to be a member of a church. And she writes with some raw honesty, which I appreciate. She, She wrote here, Nothing shatters our egos like worshiping with people we did not hand pick. Some of you resemble that remark. (laughs) People who are broken, misguided, wishy-washy, out for themselves. People who are us, she writes. 
But we don't come to church to be with people who are like us in the way that we want them to be. We come here because we have staked our souls on the fact that Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And the church is the best place, the only place, to be while we all struggle to figure out what that means. We come because we'd be hard-pressed to say which is the bigger of the two scandals of God, that he loves us or that he loves everyone else. Well, welcome to the grit and the grace of Christian community. The Lord has brought us together to live and to learn the way of Christ together. Now, this is not the only place that uh, we find ourselves uh, together here in the, uh, in the assembly, of course, in the houses of God's people, here and there. We continue together to live and to unite. Uh, this is the place, though, where we belong, however much scandal there might be in that, and this is the place that we are called to grow. Now, it's true that we did not handpick one another. We did not handpick our brothers and sisters, as Heather King put it, but in the passage before us, we remember that the Lord has brought us together, as he says here, as the elect, or chosen, of God, holy and beloved. Well, what does this mean, and what does this imply in the passage for our life together? That's what we'll be learning today. We'll be learning about what this new life in Christ that we've been given practically means for us together in our relationships in the church. And so, I'd like to begin with the way that we are addressed and then we'll see three practical implications as he draws out how we are therefore to live. So we begin with verse 12, the way that he addresses us here. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved. I pause to say, what does it mean to be the elect of God? Well, of course, it means those who are chosen by God as Many of you have it in your translations. Sad to say that for the modern church, such a word stirs controversy. But in the Bible, it is a great practical, encouraging, pastoral teaching, which tells us of the greatness of our God's love and grace, which therefore is to make us humble, since it was not of us, joyful, confident, diligent, and holy in response. Noted theologian J.I. Packer in his Concise Theology defines it this way, quote, the biblical doctrine of election is that before creation, God selected out of the human race, foreseen as fallen, those whom he would redeem, bring to faith, justify, and glorify in and through Jesus Christ. Packer explains, God owes sinners, he owes sinners only condemnation. So it is a wonder and a matter for endless praise that he should choose to save any of us, and doubly so when his choice involved the giving of his own son to suffer as the sin bearer for the elect. Jesus, therefore, uh, in, in quote on that. So uh, Jesus often reminds us, for example, that he came into the world to save those 
whom the Father had given to him. While in the same breath, urging and welcoming all, everyone, to come to him and to be saved. For example, we read a few weeks ago from John chapter 6, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. He says, this is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life. And I will raise him up at the last day. I only belabor this point for a second to say that any understanding, either of election or of the free offer of the gospel that seeks to cancel out half of Jesus' words is plainly unbiblical. Because of the free offer, none of you may despair. And because of election, none of you may boast. That's the deal. The noun elect has two adjectives modifying it, holy and beloved. To be holy, of course, is to be set apart to God, set apart from the world. Beloved means that we are the special objects of God's love, like a wife to her husband. Well, some brief explanation, but of course the real reason, the real question we have is, why does Paul remind us at this point here that we are chosen by God, holy and beloved, in the context of our relationships in the church? Well, brothers and sisters, it couldn't be more practical. As I said, election is a very practical doctrine as it's used in the Bible. God's treatment of us is therefore to be the basis of our treatment of others. I explain. In this section, he tells us to put off anger and so forth, and rather to practice, to put on these Christ-like qualities, bearing with one another in love, forgiving one another. And you know that's hard. When people have a complaint against you or you toward others. But you see, it's much, much, much easier when we first remember how much God has loved us and how he has chosen us, though we were not lovely and deserving. And first remembering that you and I, though unworthy, have nevertheless been chosen and set apart by God's gracious, sovereign, merciful love. That gives us the resources we therefore need to love and forgive those who are even now complaining against us. Verse 13. And those people are also loved by the same Father as we are. Right? Like, like uh, Augustine said about his friend Alepius, uh, we were washed in the same blood. That's what Paul is saying here. God's treatment of us, it will therefore become the basis of how we are to live in the church, how we are to treat others. And in this passage, I'd like to call your attention to three practical points that he is making. First, that Christ is all in all. Second, that Christ's heart is to be formed in all. And third, that Christ's word is to dwell richly in all. And these will be our 
three points today. First, Christ is all and in all, from verse 11. Here and now in the church, there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free, but Christ is all and in all. All right, brothers and sisters, well, if you think that ours is a divided world today, it's nothing compared to the ancient Greco-Roman world of the first century. Paul mentions here in verse 11 a few of the divisions and, frankly, prejudices and hostilities of that day, out of which the members of the church have been called by God. Now, it's difficult for us to appreciate how tense the situation was in the ancient world, for instance, between Jews and Gentiles. I mean, Jews regularly referred to Gentiles as unclean, uncircumcised dogs. And Jews would no more enter a Gentile home or sit down with a Gentile to eat than you would go into a doghouse and eat with a dog. That's the truth. The Jews hated the Gentiles, as a group at least, especially for brutally occupying their country. And the Gentiles, for their part, felt just as cozy toward the Jews. The, the Greeks and the Romans, for their part, they were sure that they were far superior to the races of barbarians, whom they had to fight from time to time. And if you were a barbarian, well, at least you had some pride if you were not a Scythian, the lowest sort of barbarian, sort of like the people from Franklin County. Freemen were a higher class, of course, than slaves, who were often revolting, literally, under Spartacus and the others. And these are just a few of the hostile, warring factions in the ancient world. And Paul says, now all of that comes to die here in the church. Now and forever, Christian Jews and Christian Gentiles have much more in common and share a much deeper bond in Jesus than even with their own respective countrymen. Now, verse 4, Christ is our life. Christ is in all. And when we share him with someone else, the fact is we share everything that matters. We share absolutely everything that will matter in the light of eternity. No matter a man's background, his past, his social status, his education, his race, his origin. The only thing in life that really matters is whether he's a new creation in Christ. And such people, if that is true of them, whatever their circumstances may yet be in the world, they carry the world and the future with them. Sin has divided mankind into all these various hostile groups, but Christ is unifying them in his love here in the church where Christ is all and in all. And it's one of the glories, therefore, of the church when people who would naturally be separated from one another in this world come together joyfully as loving brethren in Christ. It brings glory to the head of the church. He himself has chosen us out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, we read. 
And it's a vital part of our witness to the world when young and old, rich and poor, people of every race and rank and culture have devoted themselves in love to one another. Thank you for making it happen here. Thank you for reaching out to others for Christ's sake. <laughs> Thank you for staying here when you arrived and you think you didn't have much in common with these weird people. What do any other things matter if Christ is all and in all? That's his point. Well, is this going to be a matter of pride for us, elect of God? Perish the thought that the Jews had been so proud that they were the chosen people, and God said to them, the Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any other people, for you are the least of all peoples, but because the Lord loves you, that you have nothing to boast about. Paul writes similarly to the Corinthians, pointing out, you know, in the church, not many wise, according to the flesh, not many noble, not many are called of such, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things that are mighty, and the base things of the world and the things that are despised God has chosen, and the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him you're in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that, as it is written, he who glories let him glory in the Lord. So, how can we be proud here? What do we have to boast in over anyone else? Is Christ your all in all? Is he not in all? Is this not the only thing that ultimately matters in the whole world? How can we remain aloof from people who are not like us or whom the world looks down on? When Christ himself has lifted us up and brought us together in one and given us everything important in common. I mean, I know that practically every one of you at some point thinks, I don't fit in. And now it's time to perish that thought because this is the first thing that we learn as God's elect, holy, and beloved. Well, if Christ is Lord of your church life, then know that here in this place, Christ is all and in you all. Second, we are taught that Christ's heart is to be formed in all. Christ's heart is to be formed in all. Therefore, verse 12, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. All of these character qualities, though not named, not mentioned here, but they are, of course, first and supremely seen in our Lord Jesus. We read of him as the one who is compassionate and kind, humble and gentle, patient, forbearing, forgiving, and so forth. And as we put on these virtues, what we're doing is putting on the Lord Jesus Christ for his sake, and becoming like him. Every Christian 
should have these character qualities, though I know they look very different in different people. Whether you're hard driving or laid back, whether you're extroverted or introverted, people-oriented, task-oriented, however it looks like in your life, God wants you too to be conformed to the image of his Son. He begins by listing five Christian virtues that are most likely set in contrast to those five sins we considered in verse 5 and against the other five in verse 8. Now five Christian virtues. First we read, put on tender mercies, or the old King James has bowels of mercy. And yes, that's a literal translation. One Greek lexicon defines it this way, uh, to be moved as to one's bowels. Hence, to be moved with compassion, for the bowels were thought to be the seat of love and pity. All right. So, um, bowel movements mean something else today. So, therefore, the modern equivalent might be something like uh, that we might put on being moved to compassion or put on a heart of tender mercy, something like that. But the point is, it's an emotional term. Being moved to compassion, tender mercies, is, is about the feelings. It's not just the head. Tender mercies means being touched by the needs of our brothers and sisters. Just as we read that Jesus again and again had compassion for the people, same word, and healed their sick and cared for them and taught them many things, even when his disciples said, like maybe you and I would say, send them away, putting on tender mercies. Second, kindness. We have received such kindness. The Bible says that Jesus is God's kindness incarnate. When Paul writes to Titus, he writes about when the kindness of, and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared. He means that kindness appeared when Jesus came among us. Kindness is, I think, something that everyone understands. Kindness notices and cares and considers. One author writes, no amount of theological knowledge, church attendance, public prayer, or preaching will mask a deficiency in the church's kindness. If we want to be instrumental in the purposes of God and his kingdom, then we must be characterized by, kind, by kindness. This uh, same word, interestingly, I found, was used in the Bible to describe wine that had mellowed, wine that didn't bite or leave a bitter taste. Interesting. And, and it is, I suppose, to be kind is to be free from all that is harsh or, or bitter or rough. Jesus says that God is kind even to the ungrateful and the evil. And Paul writes elsewhere that the kindness of God is to lead us to repentance. So put on Christ's kindness. Third, humility. Humility. Uh, the Greeks didn't consider humility to be a virtue. But Paul elsewhere reminds us that Jesus, though he was in the form of God, made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, 
and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And therefore, he says to the church, look, in, in light of the humility of Christ, for your salvation, brother, sister, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind. Let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus humility. Fourth, we have here meekness. Meekness. Or some of you have gentleness, though the idea is definitely not being milk-mannered, uh, sorry, mild-mannered milk-toast. The main idea of, of meekness uh, is strength under control. I used to like to read the story of the medieval knights and King Arthur and the round table and so forth, and you might know that meekness was a great virtue for knights. Meekness, great strength under great control. And so he would be submissive to his king and chivalrous toward women. And this mighty knight would hold children very tenderly, right? And he would answer evil people calmly and with courage and aplomb. He wasn't arrogant. He wasn't harsh. He was meek. Writer uh, William Hendrickson comments, meekness is not weakness. It is submissiveness under provocation. It's the willingness to suffer rather than to inflict injury. Supremely seen in Jesus, he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. And therefore, Paul appealed to those contentious Corinthians in this way. I, Paul, am pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. This is what we are to put on. Moses, meekest man on earth, we read. Jesus, meek and lowly in heart. This is true manhood. Now, you've uh, heard about the man who went to the psychiatrist, and the doc said, so what seems to be the problem? Well, the man said, I, I, I just can't seem to get along with people, fat face. <laughs> and, uh, and Christians can, can be like that, not even realizing that they are being harsh or demeaning or contentious? Um, are you proud that you just say it like it is? Does your wife like to offer apologies or make excuses for you? Well, from Moses to Jesus, the great men of the Bible are meek. Paul writes, a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be meek, gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility, correcting those who are in opposition. If God perhaps will grant them repentance, so that they may know the truth. The Lord could be strong in his speech, of course, and yet it was always under control. And that is the grace of meekness, great strength under great control. Third, fifth, we have here long-suffering. Long-suffering. You know what that means, if you've listened to my sermons for any amount of time. Long-suffering, or some of you have patience. Jerry Bridges summarizes it this way. It's, quote, the ability to suffer a long time under the mistreatment of others without growing resentful or bitter, end quote. It's the opposite of having a short fuse. We see this supremely in 
the Lord who described himself this way to Moses, the Lord, the Lord, merciful and gracious and long-suffering, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. And so having received God's long-suffering in our salvation, we are called to put on his long-suffering toward others. These are the five virtues that he lists, but then he adds a few more phrases to tell us how to apply it. Uh, forbearance, or verse 13, bearing with one another. Um, he means uh, covering these lesser sins and shortcomings and faults and idiosyncrasies, being patient with faults in others, uh, a virtue that's sometimes difficult for us perfectionists. Forbearance, and next we're taught forgiveness. Forgiving one another, if anyone has a complaint against each other, even as Christ forgave you. And uh, interested to, to look and to find, this is not the ordinary word for forgiveness. It's, it's actually the verb form of grace here, showing grace to one another. And so it has this nuance of undeserved favor. We didn't deserve forgiveness, but God gave it to us freely, graciously in Christ at great cost to himself. And so we are thus to grace one another just as God in Christ has graced us. So forgiveness is not a feeling, therefore, but primarily a decision as you choose to absorb a wrong, not allow it to become a barrier between you and another person, and the feelings hopefully follow. But while God never extends forgiveness until there is repentance, he does nevertheless show people great kindness, common grace, as the theologians say. And we must do the same hard as it is to do, but it's in the doing that we learn the heart of Christ. In fact, do you know how many, notice how many of these particular virtues that he's picked out for us out of a great list he could have made, but how many of these are only needed when somebody offends you or when you have a complaint against somebody else, right? And is there any other way to learn the heart of Christ? These virtues that he's picked out, these Christian virtues that we are to put on, these things are often mentioned of Jesus, but how did he have to learn them and express them and show the world what they mean as a man? The same way that you and I do. Jesus says, my child, I want you to learn the grace of forgiveness. I have forgiven your debts. Now I want you to learn to forgive your debtors. Friends, how are you going to learn to be a forgiving person? You can't take a course. You have to be wronged. Is there any other way? God has chosen you to be conformed to the image of his Son. His son who says, I am meek and lowly in heart, and I want you to show the world my weakness. Show the brothers and sisters in your church my weakness. Now, how can you show meekness? I mean, you have to be slapped in the face. There's no other way of showing meekness. You need something to be meek toward. So in the providence of God, someone in the church comes along and, as it were, slaps you in the face again and again, as it were. You say, Lord, why is this happening? Is there any other way to learn the Lord's heart? 
Jesus comes to you and says, my child, I want you to learn the grace of long-suffering. Well, how can you learn long-suffering? Can you read a book, Long-Suffering, in 24 hours? You cannot. I mean, you might, uh, you might pray. Lord, make me, a, make me a patient man. Yeah, you laugh because you know that's a dangerous prayer. These are the things that he's putting into practice here for us. Forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against one another, just as God in Christ forgave you. You can't say to yourself, well, I'd treat him right if he'd treat me better. That's not the way you yourself were treated. That's why we began where we had to begin. Chosen, set apart, beloved. Friends, you wouldn't need long-suffering. You wouldn't need forbearance. You wouldn't need forgiveness and so forth if you never had a complaint against another. But thus God has chosen and set you apart in his love. And is there anything therefore more important than we should then show these things to others? And above all, the final virtue in verse 14, above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. Love. Those who've experienced and felt God's love. Those who've come to know the almighty, boundless affection of the living God have themselves been transformed by that love and have changed by degrees from being the self-centered, selfish people they were by nature into those whose principal ambition in life is to love to love God and to love others in his name and for his sake. And everything else that might therefore be said about the Christian life, every other virtue can, without diminishment, be reduced to love. So he says, and over all of these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. In fact, all those other virtues, they're just forms of love. Tender mercy is love's compassion. Kindness is love's self-forgetfulness and service. Long-suffering is love holding the reins. Forgiveness is love overcoming sin and so forth. Jesus was love incarnate, and to know him is to know love in a very practical, this-worldly way. And those schooled in his love are moved by it and long to love others in that same eminently practical and worldly way, the same way of sympathy, care, help, generosity, and sacrifice. And so it is. Beloved people, the people who are not lovable, but the people on whom God has chosen to set his love, and given you these brothers and sisters here, can you not over all those things in your heart and life put on love to review then so far we have seen that we have been chosen and set apart in love and now and now therefore Christ is all and in all here in the assembly and second we are therefore to put on the heart of Christ toward one another in light of what's happened to us you see how it flows. Third, and finally, 
we see that Christ's word is to dwell richly in all. Christ's word is to dwell richly in all. Verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. This is an interesting phrase, the word of Christ. It only occurs here in the Bible. We usually, of course, read word of God. That's very, very common. But Paul in this letter and in context here is emphasizing the supremacy of Jesus Christ to a church, potentially at least, plagued by false teachers who want to take Christ out of his rightful place. Now, all those who spoke of old, we read elsewhere, they all prophesied by the Spirit of Christ who testified in them. And so, we could say the Word of God, or we could say the Word of Christ in all the Scripture, inspired by him and testifies of him. So, in particular, here we are given... Uh, the word of Christ dwelling you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Uh, those three words, psalms, hymns, songs, are very familiar biblical words to the original readers. They mean something, I suppose, different to us as we have a psalter and a hymnal, right? But uh, to the original readers, these... Uh, Words very frequently occur in the Bible and are the, in the titles of almost all the psalms in Greek translation. As you might remember from a previous sermon where we focused on that. And because they are the word of Christ, God's word, uh, we are therefore given wisdom to teach and to admonish. And as far as we know, the biblical Psalms were sung almost exclusively for the first few centuries in the early church. The important thing here is that by this, the word of Christ, we can learn wisdom. We can teach each other. We can ad admonish or warn one another, as well as, of course, verse 16 at the end, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. So, let me emphasize Singing is not the filler before we get to the sermon. God is in our midst. He inhabits the praises of his people, we read. And when we are singing, or not singing, but especially when we are singing, we are singing to him. We worship by the word of Christ, singing with grace in our hearts to the Lord. We've been called out of the world, called to praise him. We've been made a kingdom of priests, Peter writes, that we might declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness into, into his marvelous light. We therefore worship according to the word of Christ. And I have here that that word is therefore also to dwell in us, implying that the scriptures are to live in you. I can go to your home, you can give me a tour, but I don't dwell there. To dwell there means that's the place I come back to each day. It's my abode. And here he is talking about the word of Christ dwelling 
richly in y'all. The word is plural. And it says, let that word of Christ dwell in you richly, richly, but as ponder and adore, revel in it at the thought of Christ who has loved you. The resurrection, the second coming, his, your being with him forever, let it fill up your heart every day with peace and thanksgiving and then live accordingly. This is what it means for Christ to be all and in all, practically speaking. Okay, so in conclusion, Paul obviously hasn't said everything he might say about uh, being together and loving, loving one another in the church. He hasn't even said anything about prayer. He hasn't said about our witness. He hasn't said anything about using our gifts. He could have said much, much more, but you have to make it in somewhere. So he concludes this section with a comprehensive statement, a summary statement, to include everything that the Bible ever teaches us about living the Christian life. Verse 17, whatever you do, in word or in deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. In fact, uh, Greek style likes to emphasize a thought by putting it first. And here, twice in this sentence, in the original, he emphasizes everything you do. Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Say everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. It's uh, further emphasized here by word and deed. That is, whatever we say, whatever we do, we are to have Christ's honor and pleasure set before us, as it were, in all that we're doing every day, doing and saying. To do all in his name is to do it on his behalf, for his sake, to his glory to serve him, to please him, to further his interests in ourselves and in others. Brothers and sisters, elect, holy, and beloved, this is what it means to have Jesus as Lord of your church life. And now in the church, may there be glory by Christ Jesus to all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Let's therefore pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this challenging teaching and pray that truly in us and in our church that Christ should be our all and in all. We do confess, Father, that uh, so often we have very little regard for Christ in what we say, if not in what we do. We may avoid this and avoid that, but we confess that we have not often put on these important virtues in the very time that we most needed to. Although it is a very difficult and dangerous prayer, we pray that you would instruct us in these, the qualities of Christ's own heart. Teach us for his sake, tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, how to bear one another, how to forgive one another just as you have forgiven us, and how over all of these things to put on love. This is the bond of perfection, what we desire. We pray that Christ should be honored, not we ourselves. We thank you that you have brought us here, that you have brought us together. We have not handpicked such brothers or sisters. We find in some ways that uh, they feel different, and yet we are reminded once again 
that if they have shared Christ with us, that we are theirs and they are ours since Christ is our all in all. And it's in him that we...